Hello, my friend and my neighbor. Thank you for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, we present one of Paul Leslie's favorite artists ever, John Goodwin. John's one of the few songwriters and recording artists who makes music as a completely free expression. And this is the first interview in a series Paul had with this artist, John Goodwin. We get a good concept of John Goodwin as an artist, and in particular learn about some of the songs from his albums, Thorny and State of the Artist. You know, listening to John Goodwin presents a, a big question. What would happen if the record companies and commercial radio stations embraced the idea of limitless expression and freedom of creativity? Yeah. And another question for you. Did you know that the Paul Leslie Hour is supported and made possible by listeners like you? It's true. It's true. Just go to thepaulleslie.com slash support. It's easy, and you'll know what to do when you get there. And thanks. Thanks to everyone who contributes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present the first of several interviews with John Goodwin. Take it away, Paul. Hola to John Goodwin. Hello. How's it going? Going good. All right. We're going to talk about two of your albums today, State of the Artist and Thorny. All right. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about how you discovered music. Well, more like music discovered me. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, teenager, you know, the radio, uh, you know, was ever-present, and uh, a lot of stuff on there touched me. So I think, as with most singer-songwriters, you kind of want to touch back with that same intensity and, and that same language that touched you. So I just started to write and sing and play and kind of create that kind of joy in my life that I got from listening to the radio and records in those days. Back in those days, what kind of stuff did you listen to? Well, when I was a kid, Elvis was, was breaking. And uh got into my early teenage years and the Beatles were happening. So, you know, I was totally into that, uh you know, everything that went along with that, you know, the English invasion and the 60s music and the early 70s and um, kind of grew up with rock and roll. One of your songs, For Those Who Still Believe, has references to Jimmy and Lennon. Um, tell us about that song and, and some of the lyrics that are a little puzzling to me. Sure. Um, well, the song, you know, it was partially inspired by seeing the history of the 60s and the spirit of the 60s being rewritten and reinterpreted uh, in the media and almost like portrayed not exactly the way it happened. You know, so a lot of people who weren't young in the 60s have an impression of it, but it wasn't really the impression a lot of people were there have. So I, I just got on to writing about, um, you know, what I remember of it. You know, the coast of California, Big Sur, Carmel, uh, you know, the whole music scene there and how it passionately uh, touched me as compared to how I see it presently portrayed uh, 
you know, in the media a lot. One of your songs has really uh, kind of entranced me, and that's Rain of a Flower. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I wrote the song in, uh, actually in a cafe in L.A., up in Beachwood Canyon. And uh, I guess I was kind of in love with the waitress who used to bring me my coffee every morning. You know, I began to think about her in life. I'm always trying to, you know, think about what's going on in my life in a given moment. And you know, I realized that, like, you know, one day, like, you know, she'd be old and maybe wouldn't have the kind of magic that was attracting me to her at that moment. And I began to think about, like, you know, uh, we all get old and we lose some of the, the magic of of our youthful appearance, just like flowers do. But the fact that flowers get old and eventually die didn't bring me any any pleasure or relief or, or satisfaction. I wasn't, you know, celebrating, you know, the inevitable, um, even though I was contemplating it. The strange girl in the song Strange Girl, is that a real person? In a sense. Um, I, I don't write a lot of fiction in my song. So usually if you ask me, like, who the girl was or where the place was that I was thinking about, I can tell you exactly. But in the case of that song, I, I wrote it in a hotel in Copenhagen one night. And the strange girl was just the spirit of this girl who I sensed more than an actual person which is really rare for me. But I, I was sort of carried away by this, just the river of, of the poetry and the music that I was writing, and it became something that I couldn't resist, like, going along with it. So, in a sense, the person was real, but based on your initial impression. Yeah, I, I would say the person, it wasn't exactly a real person that I was singing to, whereas in most of my songs it is a real person I was singing to. But it was really just a feeling that carried me along. You know, sometimes we sort of go on uh, like a vision quest, you know. We we sort of walk in the wilderness not knowing what we're going to find, but we're so, you know, intrigued by the moment that we keep on going, and that's what happened with that song. And a, a lot of it, like... um I was really there when I wrote it. I mean, I was totally, you know, visualizing the whole thing around me that I described in the song, even though, you know, physically I wasn't there. Everybody knows the saying, is it true or false? But there's a song on there entitled False or True. What made you decide to make it the mirror opposite of what first appears in our mind? Uh, I just think that's kind of like where that that phrase landed. Um, I, I guess at the time I wrote it, I was really you know disillusioned with with love and how sometimes our personal like sexual preferences are somewhat programmed by the culture and the mass media rather than you know by our, they sort of seem to override sometimes our just natural intuitive. Sensibility, you know, in perceiving love or what we'd like to be loved, you know. So, in a way, I was writing that about almost like the programming of our tastes and values about the opposite sex. And uh, at the very end of each verse, 
seemed to, I just seemed to want to say, you know, is this false or true? Like, do I lie or, or do you see the light in what I'm saying? Does, you know what I mean? Yeah. Almost like you're questioning, is our interpretation our own or is it because of what we've been, what we've been subjected to? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we're given a certain impression over and over and over again in the media of what, you know, perfection is. And we see it on every newsstand, you know, from the time we're little. Um, and I think sometimes it, it sort of distracts us from the point that perfection is more of an inner state than an outer standard. The, uh, the album art was painted by you. Um, you spend quite a bit of time with uh, another form of art, the visual arts. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, your visual art experiences. Sure. Uh, I, I kind of got hooked on it uh, when I was very young, just the thrill of painting and, and doing something, or, or even pottery or mosaics, like just doing something that... Uh, it really turned me on and, and felt complete and spoke to me when it was done. And I also found that that it spoke to other people too because they had a strong positive response to it. So um, the, the visual arts is I do it because it satisfies me so much, and uh, you know, fortunately, other people respond that way too. And another one of your albums, Thorny, um, it looks like you. Is that you on the cover? me on the cover. Now, is, was that a photograph that you painted over, or did you really paint on your face? I really painted on my face. Oh, great. I actually went out to do a photo shoot uh, for, for different parts of that album booklet, uh -huh. and uh, just as an experiment, because I'm always experimenting artistically, I brought a bunch of face paint with me and went into the bathroom at the photographer's house and just painted my face and went out there and... You know, she took a lot of pictures of me, and uh, and it just turned out to be something that people really liked and laughed at. I mean, some people were scared by it, but, you know, that's a, a painting. I washed it off when it was done. You know, it was very cool to, to do it. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, two forms of art in one. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. So, um... That's on the cover of your other album, Thorny, and you have, I think, five albums in all, right? Well, four uh, albums of new material and one album, which was my attempt to take my favorite songs off of all four albums. Oh, actually, at that point, I, I recorded three. And you're in the Nashville area, right? Yes, I am. Okay. And there's one of your songs. I know that you lived out in Cali. Um, and one of your songs, I've assumed just from listening to it, that it's autobiographical. And that's why I left L.A. Yeah. <clears throat> so tell us about that song. Well, um, I wrote that song probably in about 93 or 90, 94 when I was contemplating leaving L.A. I guess, you know, as you can tell from the song, I was pretty disillusioned with L.A. at that point. And there was a coffee house that I used to go to every morning with my friends and have coffee at. Um, I don't know, I, I began to, you know, see, I don't know, like L.A. wasn't really 
producing the kind of music that turned me on for the most part, although there's always something being made that turns me on by the music industry. But L.A. was, it just seemed to be more pose and, and not genuine uh, revolution in a positive sense. So um, I was just writing about it, and it all seemed to be taking place at that cafe, you know. I've written a couple songs about that place, actually. We played uh, a song you wrote recently uh, as sung by Jeff Bridges, and that's Van Gogh in Hollywood, uh-huh. which is going to be uh, used in a movie, Thailand. Yes. Um, and the song has a... Uh, a very vivid opening really captures the listener from the beginning uh, tell us about Van Gogh in Hollywood well Van Gogh in Hollywood came out of me thinking about you know what happens when art meets commerce or when pure art meets relatively pure commerce I mean I was thinking about what happens if Van Gogh comes to Hollywood say he's a songwriter um and he presents these flamingly brilliant song canvases to the powers that be in the midst of all that they're doing. Like, what kind of reception would he have? And that's really where that song came from. It was kind of uh, contemplating out loud in a rock and roll sense uh, that kind of dilemma, that picture, you know. You know, this is just kind of off the beaten path, but the more and more I listen to that song, and I listened to uh, Jeff's song, um, Buddha and Christ at Large. Mm-hmm. I feel there's some kind of, there are a lot of comparisons there. But, you know, like, I guess, you know, you can write something and then the listener has their own interpretation of it. Like, when we were just talking with Michael McDonald, it's, uh, he, you can write a song and to somebody else it can mean something totally different. Mm-hmm. I guess when I heard the song Vincent Van Gogh in Hollywood, I kind of thought of it as like, in some senses, I saw a lot of realism in it, but in another sense, I saw a lot of like the clashing of two, um, two things that are, are very different. In the sense that Van Gogh, I guess, is just in a, in a class of its own, and Hollywood being what it is, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, like kind of a, an old and new. I do know what you mean. You know, I think Hollywood is capable of doing some amazingly wonderful things, and and some, you know, amazingly unwonderful things too. I mean, having lived in LA for so long, I mean, I, I'm aware of like the potential of of LA and Hollywood, you know, to give the world great things, which it has. Um, I also think sometimes Hollywood may tend to err on the side of underestimating the intelligence of people outside of Hollywood. And, you know, sometimes I think like if they, if they had a little more respect for the intelligence of people in other parts of the world that they might, you know, gear up the message level a little bit and just trust that people will get something that turns them on rather than gives them something that they presume they're going to buy for whatever reason, you know? It almost feels like they're neglecting a lot of people. It's 
like they almost just have this feeling like as long as some people are satisfied, that's good enough. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And But the thing is, like, and it's weird to be defending Hollywood in any way, but <clears throat> there are a lot of very idealistic, like, screenwriters and actors and directors and producers, like, who really want to do something great. And, you know, fortunately, they get a chance to do that. And there are a lot of people who are more like aiming for the demographics and the the cultural conditioning within those demographics and sort of playing on that. And they do that very successfully, too. And we were just talking about Jeff Bridges. Um, and his album, Be Here Soon, has three songs you wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of those songs has... I noticed that Rose, the Rose makes several appearances in the lyrics of a lot of your songs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the one, uh, is it Two White Roses? Yes, it is. Yes. Um, there's songs every now and then that almost makes a person's, uh, it almost demands someone's attention because the person singing it puts such a feeling into it. So tell us a little bit about Two White Roses and just a little bit about the symbolism there. Sure, well, you know, Two White Roses is sort of, you know, I sort of imagine myself to be like, uh, you know, a million miles away from the earth looking at my situation and realizing that however large, like, you know, things are, you know, when you're looking at them, you know, from the inside out, you know, to look at them from a million miles away and try and imagine that, you know, makes everything seem almost small, uh, you know, not not really irrelevant, but it just gives you another perspective, you know, when you see the world, just a twinkling little spot of glitter, you know, suddenly everything that, you know, that's bugging you or whatever, just, you know, it's, it takes on a whole other beauty, you know. So that that was the whole basis of that song. It was more like a little bit of space travel on my part. And you and Jeff, have you two ever written songs together? Yes, we have. And it's a wonderful time. <laughs> we have the best time writing together, you know. Since I since I moved to Nashville and he still lives in California, like, you know, we get together three or four times a year and you know, in the last few years, we sat down and uh, we written the songs I just love. I guess one thing I like about a lot of these songs is they almost feel like they're a glimpse into something private. I almost feel like it's something I'm not meant to read, but I somehow have this opportunity to look through the window. Um, and... I, I like that fact that they're kind of esoteric and, um, like, in one sense, like, they, they can range from, from the, the, the somewhat mysterious and then, uh, like, other songs like Rearview Miracus where it's a story song. Um, and, you know, I think that song kind of speaks to everyone because, you know, everyone is, at one point in their life, is with someone, whether it's love or infatuation, they look, and that feeling of almost betrayal or rejection 
that they feel, or even brokenheartedness. Was that autobiographical, or was it just, you know, the 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 he sees the girl in the car and she's kissing the handsome boyfriend. Yeah, that was. <laughs> Totally autobiographical. About four years ago, I was completely infatuated with this woman, uh, who I still know, and I think, you know, she was dating an athlete here, and one cold winter night as I was driving home from this, this club where a lot of people, you know, used to hang out at that time, you know, I, I was driving home from the club and I got to the left, left hand turn, the stoplight where I turned left to go to my house, and I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and she's in the car behind me with the guy she was dating, you know, passionately kissing him. I was like cold, and I'm alone, and I'm looking there, and it's just the rearview mirror kiss, you know. Ouch. <laughs> I went home and wrote it, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it was a, it was an actual event. Absolutely. Uh, it was amazingly actual. <laughs> I like a lot of, I like songs that are almost are the kind that almost break your heart when you hear them, and you get that feeling where your stomach is kind of your your stomach kind of sinks, and for some reason, even though it makes you feel a little bit sad, you listen to it over and over. And one of those songs is "When I Believed in Love," mm-hmm. and that song immediately was my favorite from the two albums. Mm-hmm. So tell us about um, "When I Believed in Love." Well, I, I'm somebody who, whether or not I'm I'm involved with someone uh, romantically, I, I always, you know, need to believe that I am loving someone, you know, however uh, well or not I know that person. You know, I, I always have like, you know, at least one or two, three people in my heart who, you know, inspire me, kind of give me the will to go on as if there's something like, as if there's a light at the end of the tunnel, you know? But I guess at the time I wrote that, I just like, you know, I've written several times in my life about not believing in love anymore. And it's sort of a poignant place to come from. So um, that was just a little, little, little musical autobiographical snapshot of one of those moments. You have a website um, that people can get in touch with you and purchase your albums and look at some artwork. Uh, tell us uh, what the website is. It's babyrecords.com. And I literally have somebody uh, create the website for me in order to put my CDs on the site and also to display some art. You know, I really believe that every artist uh, you know, has a right to a gallery and every songwriter has a right to a you know, an album. Every every songwriter has an album in them, and I produced four. So literally, the site was built in order to make those available to people and to give me some kind of uh, you know small public profile out there. Just out of curiosity, where did you get the idea for the Baby Records t- title? Well, like a lot of things, it was kind of an impulsive uh, decision. I guess I, I was trying to think of uh, think of names of the record company. I came, I ended up with two, and uh, went for Baby Records because it, you know I, I knew that you know as an independent 
label, which I own and am the only artist on at this point, that it would be, you know, kind of uh, a baby in, you know, in the world. <laughs> so I just decided to call it Baby Records. So what, uh, what do you have going on at the moment? And what is coming out in the future? Well, um, you know, I, I have uh, songs and movies that will be coming out. And I have some uh, songs on on uh, commercial releases here, which I'd really feel better talking about after they're out, you know. Sure. But things are good. Uh, loving living in Nashville and writing with all the great writers here is just wonderful. And the movies, uh, one of the, one of them is Thailand, of course, and the other is called The Moguls, and those are going to be out later this year. I'll never stop asking this question. Right? <laughs> what would you like to say to the world? This program goes out all over the world. There are people listening everywhere. What um, What do you want to say to those people? Uh, I would say, you know, I hope your lives are getting better every day. And um, and I, I hope that, you know, there's less hunger and poverty in the world every day and less warfare and more understanding between people because we all can live together here. That's, that's basically what I'd say. It's a very spontaneous answer. I didn't have any time to think about it, but that's probably it. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I should have given you some advance warning. Because I think, you know, if I thought about it, I would say the same thing. I just hope, you know, everybody's dreams come true and they have, you know, happy lives and, uh, you know, find all the joy they deserve. All right. You can check out more information about John Goodwin at www.babyrecords.com. Thanks so much for coming on the show, John. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie, and we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.